this could have been prevented Mm -hmm. in so many different ways. And it really gets back to just the way that environmental disasters are regulated, right? The burden of proof is all on the community. They're going to have to prove their own health impacts. The company is not going to go around and say, oh, you have you have this rash. Well, that might be that's probably our fault here. Here's the money. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore, or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Abby and I are here with a great guest to talk about the Ohio train accident that happened in early February, where a Norfolk Southern train carrying toxic and combustible materials derailed. And we have an expert here who is well-versed in the way that these things impact the environment and our bodies to discuss the response, management, and context of both the accident and its aftermath. Kimberly Garrett is an environmental health researcher and toxicologist who currently works studying social, scientific, and political dimensions of PFAS contamination, also known as Forever Chemicals, at the PFAS Project at Northeastern University. Kimberly, welcome to the Death Panel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. It's great to be here. So to start us off, for folks who are not familiar with you or your work or maybe who don't even know you know, what an environmental toxicologist is. Can you talk about your research background and why you are interested in studying how industrial chemicals or chemicals in general, you know, and ultimately when we're talking about these kinds of chemicals, we're also talking about the ways that they move through space and under what conditions they move through space. And so we're also always talking about the political economy of capitalism. But what actually sort of brought you to studying how these things, as they enter the environment, begin to shape both the health of populations and the world around us? So I guess at the very beginning, I I was fascinated by the way that these chemicals can impact the ways that our bodies work, that our immune systems work, that our endocrine systems work, and how they can have all of these seemingly unrelated effects. And so then I went to the University of Pittsburgh for a master's degree where I met Abby. And, Yay! <laughs> uh, and I did my my MPH in environmental and occupational health where I got in with a lab doing inorganic chemical toxicology. And I ended up spending a long time studying a very particular molecule called phosphine, which is a mitochondrial poison. And throughout that schooling, I got training in risk assessment and transport and fate of environmental chemicals. And so started to understand the the nuances of how these chemicals move around the environment and how exposure and exposure is one thing, but the outcome might be a different thing, really depending on the body's defenses against chemicals and things like that, which really interested me. And then I ended up in Boston at Northeastern University studying more of the social science side of chemical pollution. And, and I feel like right now my career is a, is a really nice balance of thinking about individual chemicals, but also the social 
factors around those chemicals and how we can use our social structures to demand safety and regulate chemicals so that companies don't have, you know, full speed ahead uh, pollution capabilities. Yeah, like carte blanche <laughs> to just poison whoever they want. Yeah. It's like yeah, a and request so seeing, to pollute, actually, almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know that there's a lot of that going on in Pittsburgh, specifically in the air, but around the country, there are you know, thousands of, of known PFAS contamination sites. And our lab has developed a model to identify potential or presumptive PFAS contamination sites. And we found over 50,000 of them. So it, it's really a, a big issue. Do you mind if I ask you to sort of expand on what PFAS actually are for maybe folks who might not be familiar? So there are a variety of definitions and a definition of PFAS is kind of a hot topic right now. And um, our group's approach is that a PFAS chemical is any chemical with one fully fluorinated carbon molecule. So PFAS chemicals really rely on their carbon fluorine bonds. They're some of the strongest bonds that we can observe. They occur very rarely in nature, but they don't break down. Uh, whereas a lot of other chemicals are subject to degradation by the sun or by bacteria in the soil or through sewage treatment plant mechanisms, those carbon fluorine bonds stay. They stay and they are really difficult to break and they stay in soil, they stay in water, and they they can stay in our bodies. Um, they bind to proteins in our bodies. And so they're everywhere because they don't break down and they were used expansively throughout the 1900s. So they're water resistant and uh, flame resistant. They're used as firefighting foams. So if you have an oil and gas fire, you don't want to throw water on it, but you can throw a fluorinated firefighting foam, which kind of um, muffles the fire and doesn't react in the same way that water would with that kind of fire. I was actually like massively exposed to PFOS because when I was in utero, there was reporting about this in Pittsburgh recently because the area where I was born is near the Pittsburgh International Airport, which had been oh, using yeah. just huge quantities of, of, you know, fluorinated firefighting foams for exercises, like not even for any fires. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, Kim, but, no, uh, that's no, a, that's really interesting. That's my PFAS story. <laughs> yeah, airports and military bases and firefighting Areas are in our model are automatically presumptive sites. And I believe mm -hmm. the Pittsburgh International Airport is a known site in mm -hmm, Pennsylvania. So we can think of, of PFAS exposure on those huge scales, right? Uh, pounds and pounds of foam being sprayed into the environment. But it's also in products that we use every day. I'm looking at my partner's new rain jacket, which we used a tool to find a PFAS-free one, but they're in Gore-Tex, um, Teflon, Anything that is is nonstick or water resistant, that's most likely going to have a PFAS in it. Though there are some silicone alternatives, and and some of the alternatives are really becoming really useful and and more prevalent. Um, but they're also in the uniforms that firefighters wear. There's a protective layer that is non-reactive because you don't want gases or high heat getting too. The person's body, but there are some associations with adverse health outcomes in firefighters because of exposure not only to the foam but also the the material in their uniforms. And so it's it's really it's a big mess. And yeah, uh, companies are starting to be held accountable for their pollution. We see 3M phasing out the use of all PFAS by 2025, and 
there have been some historic cases against DuPont for their mm -hmm. uh, PFAS contamination, but uh, it's still a huge, huge problem in the United States. And also uh, around the world, as we're seeing, it, they migrate into wildlife, into soils and permafrost all around the world, even in places that you wouldn't expect, like polar bears or, um, you know, high Arctic ice. There it is terrifying. It's terrifying. There's one thing that I want to add as to how terrifying this is. So this is like sort of endocrine disrupting chemicals more generally. It might be specific to phthalate chemicals, but uh, so uh, as as Kim mentioned, we met in grad school. We went to the same grad school, although we were in kind of different departments. And um, when I started grad school, I was doing, I ended up, you know, kind of shifting my focus and my dissertation was about something else. But when I started out, I was doing a lot of work in environmental reproductive epidemiology. And I mean, it was fascinating. You know, we were looking at how phthalates affected the function of the placenta, which is like just a super interesting kind of like subfield of epidemiology. But I remember like my advisor, like my mentor on those projects, every time she gave a talk, you know, she had a slide showing the concentrations of different chemicals in our bodies and like what's terrifying. And I don't remember where she obtained like the data for this or anything I could find out, but like phthalates, endocrine disruptors are like circulating in our bodies at a higher level than like endogenous neurotransmitters that like our bodies make themselves, you know, like more, <laughs> like we have more like, like seriously, we have more phthalates in our in our bodies than we do like molecules of, of serotonin which is not what i was promised as my like sexy cyborg future but i guess i'll take it <laughs> i'm laughing because i get so many emails from absolute jackasses who are you know because i am public in some capacity about my chronic illness because of the show to contextualize like the position that i'm speaking from you know, it really kind of opens you up to the peanut gallery and people feel like really entitled to just ask you, like, what made you blind and what made you sick? And like, you know, were you exposed to these things? And and one of the most common things that I get is like, you have to get off of your chemo drug. Your chemo is going to do you realize you're poisoning yourself? And I'm like, oh motherfucker, <laughs> I love this. I'm going to respond to everyone now and be like, do you know that you've got more PFOS in your body than serotonin like fuck off <laughs> like I'm gonna keep my methotrexate it's very safe sir I'm taking very little shut the fuck up <laughs> can I be a little square for a second yeah please <laughs> so I'm a big proponent of something that I call toxicological nuance um which one of the big tenets of toxicology is that the dose makes the poison and that's different for every chemical so you know we do have a lot of evidence that that phthalates for example are are bad for your health. And so I want to, you know, add to that argument and say there is evidence that phthalates are harmful in high concentrations. Um, but just because, you know, there's more of one chemical in the body than than another doesn't, you know, inherently, that's not the only, oh, yeah. the only yeah, yeah, issue. Yeah. But I just totally. want to get that out there because I, I don't want someone to say, oh, well, there's more water in your body. And everyone <laughs> who's ever died has had water in their body. And that we see that same argument with anti- like chemo rhetoric chemo is a really well applied poison and it's useful in that case it's very well calibrated we, yeah. it's it's funny because if we think about things like t 
T-gel have this reputation of needing to be like in this special class of drugs because of the risk of what could happen if like a a truck carrying a bunch of um, testosterone spilled, right? There was this sort of moment where testosterone is essentially classified as a controlled substance because of this anxiety of like, well, what happens if the testosterone gets out into the environment? Oh my God, what if a chemical spilled? What if something went wrong in a chemical spill? What if it's the testosterone train? Right. And it's it's what it results in is these downstream moments where folks who are trying to access HRT are like, you know, put through these administrative burdens based on our kind of moral anxieties about certain medications being dangerous where, you know, then we approach other things. And maybe this is actually a good way to sort of actually get to the thing that we're talking about, which is this this train derailment. You know, it it's <laughs> it's funny to compare the kind of moral panic over something like testosterone and needing to make sure that's controlled with the kind of ways that we have really approached the transportation of large scale, not just industrial chemicals, but just materials that when there is a problem with the train and these chemicals need to be dealt with or there's a burn, we're not just burning the chemicals like we're burning the cars and all that shit on the train, too. And it's a much larger ecological problem than the one event. So, Kimberly, would you mind there have been a bunch of different sort of narratives about what's what's gone on and maybe just to sort of set the context here for people who maybe don't really know the details. Do you mind walking through your perspective of sort of what went on here in terms of the things that were in the train and also the sort of response to it? I think it would be great for us to just sort of start with like, you know, from your expertise and your perspective, what happened here? Sure. So I'm not directly associated with any of the parties involved in this situation, but I am from the area and I I do have environmental health knowledge. And so from my perception of what happened, I heard about the incident through an environmental health newsletter that I get every day in my email inbox. And it said train derailment in Western Pennsylvania or Eastern Ohio. And the first thing that I thought was of the Pittsburgh compressed natural gas trains that go through the city multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other issue that I could talk about. But uh, I called my parents to make sure they were doing okay. And they luckily were fine. They didn't have to evacuate. My mom smelled it the day after they did the controlled burn. But what seems to have happened is that there was a train coming from Illinois to Western Pennsylvania, carrying materials that are used in plastics manufacturing. And Western Pennsylvania has a lot of manufacturing operations. Their new shell ethane cracker plant was brought online uh, within the past few months and has already noticeable exceeded. declines in air quality. Yeah, it has really with their emissions and and you know that's a whole whole mess. But um, I don't have confirmation that it was headed for there, but it was going to the area. It was going to the Conway terminal, which. I'm sorry, this is like really deep, like Western Pennsylvania geography, but that that makes me think it was going to that cracker plant because it's right there. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But, you know, I don't have, you know, I have a, I can see the manifest that they published, but they didn't say like, this is yeah, exactly. where the property of Shell Ethane Cracker Plant. Um, <laughs> and so they had a couple of components that are used in plastics manufacturing, one of which being vinyl chloride, which is kind of the chemical of the hour that Mm -hmm. that we talked a lot about. And um, apparently there was a broken axle. So interestingly enough, my dad is a metallurgist who works on train parts. Oh, interesting. 
he and I were really just calling my mom all day. <laughs> um, but he told me about this uh, axle and they had apparently had security footage of it messing up for a few miles and the train derailed in East Palestine. Then, as you might expect with a, a large train derailment that apparently was two miles long, the two mile long train with its 150 cars toppled over. And as you might expect, a fire started. There's a lot of yeah. fuel and a lot of force and just a lot of energy going on in a train derailment. And so the fire is really, in my perspective, the aspect that changed the way that they had to respond to mm-hmm. the situation. So in my mind, there are four options of how this this could have gone. So number one, uh, the train companies could have listened to workers when they said, hey, uh, mm-hmm. we're overworked and our trains yes. are falling apart. Will you please give us the bare minimum of workplace protections? And the company said no. Uh, so the number one solution would have been, you know, improve the infrastructure in the area. The second one would have been no fire. And the tankers just took a little tumble, but they all stayed in their assigned seat in their little tanker cars. And then, you know, hazmat crews could come in and take that away to be destroyed of properly, which is another environmental justice issue that we could talk about later is where do these things get destroyed mm-hmm. properly. But, um, you know, then we wouldn't have had a spill into the groundwater in East Palestine. The other options had to do with the the fire and vinyl chloride is explosive it explodes at a very relatively low temperature right fire is very hot but there are different hotnesses of fire <laughs> and, <laughs> and vinyl chloride is just kind of raring to explode whenever whenever there's pressure and a lot of heat which was happening in the train cars and so the major issue at the time was the immediate explosion risk and the immediate issue of the vinyl chloride. So the options in this case were to wait around and see if the train car actually exploded. And that depends on the amount of risk or the the likelihood that that would happen. And and I assume that the likelihood was very, very high because of just that the heat that was going on and, and other things were burning and, you know, the cars were oxidizing due to that heat. So they were losing integrity. The other issue was that a thermal inversion was coming in. A thermal inversion is when a layer of cool air on the ground gets trapped by a layer of hot air or warm air over top. And in this particular case, it was going to get lower lower to the ground. So meteorologists had predicted this thermal inversion was coming in and would be there, I believe it was Monday evening, whichever day they did the controlled burn, it was a Sunday or a Monday, but that evening there was going to be a thermal inversion that was very close to the ground. And what happens in a thermal inversion is that all of the combustion products or the pollution or just regular air chemicals get kind of trapped down at the bottom and they don't they don't dissipate as quickly and the concentrations can really build up. And so they knew that that was coming in. And so that was really an essential part of what I assume in the decision to do the controlled burn when they did, because they didn't want to wait and see if the explosion happened during a thermal inversion, because then all of those contaminants would have lasted so much longer in the environment and posed a larger risk to the surrounding plants and animals and anyone who might have happened to still be in the area compared to the controlled burn, which they could do before the thermal inversion got in. And in fact, in the images, you can see that the cloud flattens out at the very top 
And that is the thermal inversion. So you can see that it's there and you can see that it's fairly high, but you wouldn't want it to be any closer to the ground. And I'll just add to this, like thermal inversions are really common in Pittsburgh and they really do. Like you can tell the days when there's an inversion because the air is just like chokingly bad, you know, even without a even without a chemical spill going on. So I you know, that's a really important part of this. Yeah. Would you like me to talk about Denora? I mean, I'm always down to talk about Denora. <laughs> I think it's an important context because it's another example of uh, a Western Pennsylvanian environmental disaster. So in the town of Denora, Pennsylvania, which is is a little bit south of Pittsburgh, there was a zinc smelter and a wire processing plant. And in 1948, those plants were puffing out all of their contaminants, which included like sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, and hydrogen fluoride, which turns into uh, hydrofluoric acid in the environment. But they were going on business as usual for this little town. And a thermal inversion came in and trapped all of those contaminants on the ground. And of course, there had been, you know, air quality issues generally because of this industrial activity, but the thermal inversion trapped all of them close to the ground. And Mm -hmm. it lasted for a few days there was actually a Halloween parade during the smog that no one could see. Um, and I would love to have pictures from that, but wow. I, I haven't found any. Um, but so it trapped all of this smog. And there are pictures of daytime Nora, which look like nighttime. The streetlights are on. No one can see. And it's irritating to the lungs, to the mucosa. Just People are getting sick. Um, so thousands of people had respiratory illness and 20 people unfortunately died during this event. And it really led to interest in what we now know as the environmental movement in the United States and eventually contributed to the passing of the Clean Air Act. And something similar happened in London in 1952, the Great Fog of London, in which industrial contaminants got stuck close to the ground and and thousands of people, again, were sickened. And and I know at least hundreds died, maybe thousands died. So really, really bad stuff going on with the thermal inversions. Yeah. So this was... um... This was like weighing in in your mind or in I guess in your expert opinion, this was a huge factor in the decision making process to do that controlled burn. Is that is oh, that right? Yes, right. absolutely. Absolutely. The thermal inversion was the thing that I was the most worried about. Um, I had heard that people were evacuating, and that's good not only for the vinyl chloride explosion risk, but just general explosion risk. You don't want to be around a train car of anything when it's at high risk of explosion. Um And then, of course, the concern over the combustion products of vinyl chloride. So I had initially heard that the cars were carrying phosgene, which I was Mm -hmm. very taken aback by. (laughs) (laughs) If it's possible, could we just um, explain also like why that would be unusual, too? Because I think a lot of people have been kind of confused about that point, too. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. So um, when vinyl chloride combusts or catches on fire and breaks down, It turns into a few different products, including our regular fire products like carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. But it also has two 
products that were really of interest for toxicology. So one is phosgene and the other is hydrogen chloride. And phosgene we know as a chemical weapon used in World War I, it is really dense and stays low to the ground. So again, if we think of thermal inversion, right. you don't want a bunch of dense gases in the inversion as well. Um, and so phosgene is a respiratory toxin or, or a, a lung toxin. It gets down to the deepest part of your lungs and interrupts the relationship between your bloodstream and the air so oxygen can't get in. Uh, and so that's that's pretty nasty stuff. However, it does break down fairly fast in the environment with rain and moisture in the surrounding area, but it's not something you want to be around while it's actively being produced. Um, hydrogen chloride turns into hydrochloric acid on contact with moisture. And so we have moisture in our lungs and in our mouths. And the risk around hydrogen chloride is that it produces a liquid liquid hydrochloric acid in your lungs, which is not not anything that not you want to mess want. around with. Um, and but again, it turns into hydrochloric acid in contact with any moisture. So um, moisture in the air it tends to not last, you know, as long as something that we think of as like PFAS, for example. Mm -hmm. So those two products were going to be produced and. The production of those chemicals reduce the amount of vinyl chloride. So vinyl chloride breaks down into all of those products. It is not remaining and also producing those products. So that's something that I've I've seen around is that, you know, there were huge amounts of vinyl chloride dumped. And while, you know, there certainly is the potential to have some um, escape into the soil and, and some of the surrounding areas, the majority was burned off. And that's what we saw in those, those huge clouds. Um, so... In comparison with carrying phosgene, I don't really know that there are any industrial uses for phosgene anymore. I know that it is considered an industrial product because it's produced with vinyl chloride. Vinyl chloride is it's really important for plastics manufacturing. And so yeah, it makes, it's like PVC pipes. Right. Yeah. It's it's a precursor to those. And so if you know, if something is going to a plastics manufacturing plant, more often than not, there'll there'll probably be vinyl chloride on board. But well, not I phosgene as far as I know. <laughs> So, yeah, Kim, I know, um, you know, one of one of the big goals of sort of like the, the science communication that you do is to communicate uh, what you what you call toxicological nuance, um, mm -hmm. what some of us uh, on this podcast might also call a dialectical approach to science. <laughs> um, but this disaster as, you know, sort of a big splashy chemical spill, you know, the white noise parallels, all that stuff is sort of moving out of the news cycle already, but there is going to be kind of a long tail of this event. And there is, you know, a lot of, I'm, I'm certain, like toxicological nuance, but also a lot of like real uncertainty. You know, the nature of the data are just rather uncertain. So, you know, I'm wondering if we could get your take on like the long-term perspective from, you know, maybe like a like a toxicological, you know, or like an environmental toxicological perspective on what the long term of this disaster looks like. And also, you know, when we're talking about the long term, I think we really are kind of talking about the social context of, of how this happened, you know, the history of the region, environmental justice concerns in the region and, you know, other things that are going on, not even related to this chemical spill. So I know I've kind of like I've kind of stuffed a lot at, like in there, but I'm wondering <laughs> um, if you can take us sort of from like, OK, like where do we what does right. this mean from here in terms of, you know, the the risk situation, like assessing the risk and the chemicals and then also like. How do you see this kind of fitting into like a broader social context? 
So from the environmental perspective, the results from EPA, both um, Ohio and the federal EPA results are what I'm looking at right now. From what I can see, vinyl chloride in Ohio's municipal water was observed February 12th at 0.2 parts per billion, which is the reference level of the sample. But that reference level is 10 times lower than the national maximum contaminant level. So it's below the drinking water regulation. And, and you can argue, you know, they technically have an MCLG, which is a maximum contaminant level goal of zero for vinyl chloride, right? But we see this with PFOS too, right? The the safest level is is zero, but the current technology in wastewater treatment is not able to achieve zero. Um, the other chemical of concern going forward, I've heard a lot of concern about dioxins and there is a potential for dioxin to be produced with an accident like this. It's from incomplete combustion of some of the plastics products. And the a little bit of misinformation that I've seen around this is people say they're not testing for dioxin. And they say, well, which dioxin? The, the EPA currently shows 29 different um, dioxins, none of which have the word dioxin in their name. So it's a little hard to go through all of the data that's available. But, you know, anyway, so those are, are two of the main chemicals of concern going forward. And it's important to note that vinyl chloride's carcinogenicity is associated with long term low level exposure, um, not necessarily the, the levels that we're seeing in these drinking water results. But as for going forward, honestly, I would like to know if PFOS foams were sprayed on the site, mm -hmm. um, because that is a huge remediation issue. Um, yeah, that's I, a good point. I didn't even think of that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, when we were developing our, our presumptive contamination model, we had train accidents as a, as a presumptive site for a while. And it turns out the data set isn't isn't complete. So we ended up not using it. But uh, train sites as presumptive firefighting foam sites. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's important that communities, if they do find PFOS or any other contaminant, that their municipal water systems update technology to deal with those contaminants. And what we've seen with PFOS is that once a, a community notices contamination or becomes aware of, of contamination, their water systems are you know glad to get the new technology, but they don't get material support from mm -hmm. either the polluter or the state or the federal government. And so the costs of those technologies are reflected back on the bill payer. And in no way should any of these communities be held responsible to pay for Norfolk Southern's negligence. Yeah. And something that I've been frustrated with is people saying, you know, if you have this concern, talk to your medical provider. Well, in the United States, not everyone has a medical provider or a relationship with the medical provider or feels safe going to a medical provider or comfortable. And also, can we afford going to a medical provider, right? So I would love to see some, you know, clinics and healthcare access work in this area, because over the past decade, Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio have seen hospitals close. It's a really rural area, and rural healthcare is a huge issue right now, where people's local doctor's offices are closing because you know it's not profitable to keep them open, or a, a healthcare conglomerate comes in and, and takes over and <laughs> UPMC down. Cough, cough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am specifically talking about UPMC. Um, and 
in this area, it's it's such a big deal. Even where I grew up, my mom is a nurse at, at one of at a hospital that sees a lot of rural patients. And every year they have the same conversation of whether or not they're going to be bought out or whether or not they're going to be able to operate. And if their hospital is gone, that's that's it for the region. There are a few hospitals. And also, if you have an, a hospital in your area, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have access to the specialists that you need. If, you know, like someone with uh, liver issues, maybe they they need a liver doctor and maybe they would have to take the whole day off of work to drive an hour and a half to Pittsburgh to wait in a waiting room to see a provider there. I, I speak specifically of my experience with a, a lung doctor in Pittsburgh where um, I was very lucky to have you know great care and, and access to care there. But when I would wait in the waiting room, every single time there would be at least three families who say, you know, we drove an hour and a half. We're sorry we're late. Can we still have our appointments? And and so it's clearly an issue for the entire region. Well, and I mean, I think in terms of when we're thinking of just how regions become sort of made available for extraction, people have been talking about this area as being like potentially forever ruined and that, you know, you should never move back. And there's a lot of kind of doom saying about it. But it it is frustrating to consider that in the context of the way that we've seen you know, not just in this in this region or in this one rural area, but across the United States pretty consistently since the late 1980s, we've seen nearly 45 or 46 percent of all um, formerly public hospitals privatized. Um, even when hospitals don't close and they just are privatized and consolidated, you see the most poor patients, people on Medicaid being the way that like their lack of access to care is the way that hospitals turn around something that's, you know, a formerly maybe community hospital that was a safety net hospital that was not profitable into something that is attractive enough to be privatized and, and bought up by VCs and things like that. So. A couple of weeks ago, we were we were talking about the looming Medicaid cliff that we have in the United States with the pandemic sort of framework that had extended it um, expiring on April 1st, which is going to mean that all these people are up for redeterminations. And, you know, in the context of seeing all this sort of divestment from safety net hospitals and then also knowing that those hospitals have increased burden of Medicaid patients and that you've got this kind of race to the bottom when it comes to staffing. Like we have a, a health system that is not set up to to provide people with the access to the care that they need. Like this is what we talk about all the time on the show. And the the system is getting increasingly worse in the context of COVID's demands, um, but also in the context of what you know we're gonna see policy wise. And so one of the things that actually uh, we were talking about sort of before Recording, Abby and I was this this uh, op-ed that came out in Stat News called Medicare for All uh, of East Palestine, and it was sort of was talking about Medicare for All of East Palestine? Question mark. Yeah. And it's sort of talking about, you know, is it possible for some sort of like crisis um, intervention to get stood up here for some sort of way of doing, you know, like a, a 9-11 survivors fund sort of thing? And of course, within this framework, even the proposition of it, as Abby saying, is like coming from this perspective of being incredulous, right? And saying like, you know, it would be politically impossible to essentially guarantee that people have a payer because, again, like Medicare as an insurance is is fantastic. I mean, it's it's great. I'm so grateful for it. It's not perfect, but it is a big deal. But it doesn't mean shit 
if there's no doctor to go to. And it doesn't mean <laughs> shit if the waiting lists at the doctors are so long because we've seen this consolidation and we've seen this impulse of sort of running things lean to make the, the profit margin per patient higher. You know, it's like so. So essentially, you know, within the kind of framework that we're working in, like this is, I think, one of the reasons why we try and approach understanding health the way we do on the show, because the kind of very narrow way that we conceptualize health and what counts as health care and health access in this country is going to directly dictate what people's outcomes are when they come into exposure with environmental toxins or any of these things. Like, it's not going to be, you know, this kind of moment of terrifying and public, big, splashy kind of crisis abandonment. This is not like you know, a Chernobyl situation. This is a kind of crisis of ongoing American capitalism that is layering on top of other things. And I think that's that's part of what's been kind of missing from a lot of the conversation. You know, as you're saying, like the what's going on at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center has like a lot to do with what the region is sort of even experiencing. And it's not even just that's just one medical system. We know that like the entire area, the whole Midwest especially, has been this hotbed of privatization that has been worse and worse and worse for rural communities. And the people who do use city hospitals tend to be coming from rural areas. In terms of like getting doctors out to people's houses, like absolutely. But like if then it's an hour and a half to the pharmacy, it becomes incompatible to actually follow through the administrative burdens that you actually have to do and still work enough hours to pay your rent. And and so ultimately, you know, I think it's pretty frustrating to see how, you know, in the context of the discussion of our railway labor that we had in this country, the um, way that we sort of saw Congress step in and, and shut down labor actions as being like not valid, really, because the supply chain is more important. And then to have this happen right after, it's one of those moments where it looks like this might be one crisis, right, or one one thing that's going on. But this is actually a, a broader logic. And it's also about sort of the, the disposability of people who live in this area in general. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact yeah. that one company's negligence can make people's lives i saw from someone a living nightmare is just so egregious and the fact that there aren't social systems in place to support people when something terrible has happened and they're left on their own to go find you know a doctor somewhere else and take the day off and all of these interconnected systems it's it's really really egregious and really striking in this case yeah i think what i really want people to understand or like take away from this episode, I guess, from from like a very, very sort of high level conceptual framework, I guess, is that this chemical spill is one moment in an ongoing crisis of industrial capitalism. And I want people to understand that industrial capitalism works because people like me, you know, people who live in this region of the country It's certainly not the only region of the country where this obtains, but it's definitely true. You know, industrial capitalism, the capitalist economy, it functions because like we are poisonable, right? Like we are poisonable and like disposable. And there's a very long history of just poisoning, you know, environmental degradation in this in this area. And um, something, you know, these residents uh, of East Palestine, like something very They've been harmed, like something bad has been done to them. 
but it's it's happening in this kind of like broader and much more slowly unfolding process. And, you know, I just am I'm not sure that people realize that like Pittsburgh has bad public health. I'm going to, you know, talk about Pittsburgh because that's that's where I'm from. And that's what I what I know. Pittsburgh has really bad, you know, public health metrics, like really low life expectancy, you know, high levels of cancers and things like that. I have family members that have, I mean, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh in like the 50s, I'm sure was like not a great time for anyone's lungs. But like, you know, I have family members that sort of grew up in Pittsburgh before deindustrialization who have permanent lung scarring. You know, they have syndromes um, just from just from breathing the air. And as Kim notes, this is a huge environment, you know, like even the public health statistics that I'm mentioning, like life expectancy is much lower, you know, in um for example, black uh, Pittsburghers than in, in white Pittsburghers, even though, you know, I think it's probably lower than the national average across the board. You know, this is totally ongoing, like after, you know, the controlled burn, you know, and, and the, the images of that plume, you know, were everywhere all over the news. You know, people were starting to look at like airnow.gov in the Pittsburgh region and seeing like, oh, shit, this air quality is so bad. And I think people were connecting that to the to the controlled burn. But I was right. like, no, no, no. Like there's this uh, the shell uh, like ethane cracker plant, which was just built. That's in Beaver County, which is like between Pittsburgh and East Palestine. It's like northwest of Pittsburgh. And then to the southeast of Pittsburgh, there are still operating um, steel mills, in particular, the Clareton Coke Works, like the Liberty Clareton area has some of the worst air quality in the world consistently because of the Clareton Coke works. I'm talking like triple digit AQI, um, you know, and then you layer that in like, you know, temperature inversions are happening all the time. I remember a couple of years ago, like it, I, it was around Christmas time. I remember it distinctly. I was thinking like, oh, it's so foggy, like how pretty, you know, whatever. And then unrelatedly thinking, am I getting sick? Like my throat hurts, whatever. And, you know, realizing two days later, like, oh, that was that was an inversion fog. <laughs> like that was all toxins that I was like, breathing in or whatever. Anyway, I don't I don't really know exactly where it is that I'm trying to take this. But like, this is the bargain of industrial capitalism, like for us. And it is to me, it's like a pressing and ongoing environmental justice issue, like just in general, right? Like how polluted the air, how polluted the soil are. Well, it's the kind of uh, vote with your feet mentality of um, like organized abandonment that Ruth Wilson Gilmore was talking about in the interview uh, I did with her in October, where she said, like, you know, sometimes organized abandonment is is very obvious and sort of uh, insidious. And other times it's things like vote with your feet where you have exposure naturalized as choice. Right. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, oh, well, like if the pollution's so bad in Pittsburgh, like just move. Right. And then and and there's a kind of. um, way that like takes people and and land and and sort of propertizes them that way. Yeah. Can I expand on the Clareton Cokeworks issue? Yes, of course. Please do. Yes. So you mentioned how in order for these industrial structures to be profitable and operate, uh, the people surrounding them are disposable or expendable, right? I think that this really exemplifies that case in Pittsburgh. The Clareton Coke Works is subject to air quality regulation, but the Allegheny County Health Department charges them a few hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. each time they exceed. Mm-hmm. Right? U.S. Steel makes billions of dollars. <laughs> right? it, it sets up a, a pay-to-play situation in which they are literally paying to get away with harming the community's health surrounding the area. And it, I was wondering if 
you're around Christmas time, smog was related to the Christmas fire at the Clareton Coke Works. Um, my colleague, Dr. Brandy Hill, published a paper when we were in grad school together studying asthma rates surrounding an accident that happened on Christmas, around Christmas in the Clareton Coke Works. And we saw increased uh, exacerbation of asthma symptoms in the surrounding areas. And so directly correlating those things together really started a discussion about should we allow this to happen with the Clareton Coke Works? And I believe that eventually led to increasing some of those fines for the Clareton Coke Works, but there's still nowhere near any kind of actually like punitive, you know, uh, it, they're very low stakes for the company. And, and as long as Pittsburgh continues to just kind of do a slap on the risk to the biggest polluters in the region, then we're not going to have any any major change because those companies have the power to pump out whatever they want into the environment and then say, oh, sorry, here's $100,000. Like that's, it's not a sustainable model. And it's, <laughs> oh, it sorry, community. here's $100,000. And by the way, you can't prove that you got sick because of anything. Right. <laughs> right. And so, and that in context also with, with the compressed natural gas trains that go through the urban centers, right? Yes. Like, talk about would, it. Talk that, about it. I want to talk that about would level, That would level city blocks immediately upon explosion. Like we are not prepared to have an East Palestine train derailment in Pittsburgh, but we have compressed natural gas, miles long trains of compressed natural gas going through the city center multiple times a day. Yeah. And the city tried to hold the train companies accountable and the state said, no, you don't have the authority to regulate the trains in that way. What kind of system? And they derail all the time. We had mouthwash train, right? We're so lucky that was just mouthwash oh that derailed, God. right? I mean, mouthwash still isn't great to put in the water. Yeah. But but the fact that, that we had a major train derailment and nothing happened and we didn't say, oh, good thing this was just mouthwash. Let's change something. It's just so in keeping with Pittsburgh's environmental policy. Oh, my gosh. It's something that I really wanted to make sure that we mentioned. So, yeah, Pittsburgh, like I grew up in Pittsburgh. I live in Pittsburgh. Huge, you know, trains cut right through. I'm talking less than half a mile from from my house. You know what I mean? Like people are living in very, very close proximity to railroads that have these compressed natural gas trains because of, you know, fracking in the surrounding region. Again, exploitation of the exploitation of the land, exploitation of, you know, the people who work on the railroads and like, you know, harm to the community. It all sort of kind of goes together. Um, and it's it's outrageous because so Norfolk Southern, the railroad company that is responsible for the derailment in East Palestine they are at the end of like a long process of, you know, soliciting public comment, which I don't think has been very vigorous on a, a plan. They have a public private partnership that Norfolk Southern is going to do with some agencies in Allegheny County or in city of Pittsburgh, some like public agencies. And what they're doing is investing money to upgrade rail bridges that they use around the city, which sounds like it might be good but it's actually very bad because the reason that they want to upgrade these rail bridges is so the rail bridges can hold more weight. And the reason that they need the rail bridges to hold more weight is that, you know, in addition to these, you know, two mile long trains, you know, these 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 long, long trains that they're running, you know, with maybe one person working um, on the train. In addition to that, now what they want to do is. I can't even believe this is real. Like, it's just called double stacking, and it is just exactly <laughs> oh, what it yeah. sounds like. It's just double stacking 
you know, freight cars on top of each other. And what little I've read about double stacking, it's very dangerous. It's like really easy for like, you know, like a freight car that's stacked on top of another one on a moving train, you know, on railroad infrastructure, that's a fucking piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like on equipment that's Mm -hmm. not maintained with like very few staff that are like overworked, whatever, like on these railroads, like it's, I think it creates a very high risk for some type of like, derailment spill like contamination event whatever and it's just happening like no one's even no one's even talking about it like it's barely been in the news it's barely yeah it's barely been in the news um in pittsburgh i just found out that the last like public comment session happened in january so i don't even know where it's going to go from now but uh anyone who's listening to this the, the mayor of pittsburgh is named ed gainey and uh you could definitely give his office a call and let him know what you think <laughs> about this yeah it, it's interesting that now we're getting our bridges updated. Yeah, right. This is what it takes oh. just so that Norfolk Southern can do more like shit. Yeah, uh, I, I have a whole thing about Fern Hollow Bridge too, but I, I, I'll i save that. <laughs> Fern Hollow Bridge, just for in case we keep this in, Fern Hollow Bridge is a bridge that collapsed in Pittsburgh like last year or what, two last, years ago. Last winter, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was like a year ago. I, yeah. I always forget that not everyone is familiar with the intricacies of Western Pennsylvania. And now that I've moved <laughs> to Boston, I find myself really defending Pittsburgh in a lot of situations, <laughs> but also being like, no, also. Am I like one of the most like it. Pittsburgh-centric shows, I'd say. Like uh, ever. Ironically. Yeah, just between yeah. Abby and Phil, you know, if you don't love Pittsburgh, you're not really welcome on the death panel. You don't um, have to. Yeah. You don't have to love it, but... You I've never been. Tolerate I'm, ready, That's what I'm, I'm ready to throw down to defend Pittsburgh, <laughs> for, you know, and I still haven't been, as I was saying. Um, no, but I, I think in all honesty, this this really more than anything else is like the reason why I really was excited to talk to you both about it for the show in the context of the work that we're doing here. This is ultimately one of those textbook instances where it's evidence of why something like Medicare for All is a floor, not a ceiling, right? Because if we want to talk about actually structurally addressing health and dealing with health and and wanting people to be able to access health, not this like version of health that we have under capitalism, which is really a kind of aspirational consumer uh, object, not so much like an actual state of being, we'd actually have to start thinking through some of the things that beyond the individual medical encounter are going to result in slow death, right? Or result in things that become cancer. And this is, I I mean, I was thinking so much about Lauren Berlant's work in the context of this as well, especially because they talk so much about how these ongoing crises, because of the way, you know, we sort of think about ourselves and the world and, and politics, they often become very hard to see and they become things that we talk about addressing through individual behaviors or choice and through these kind of models of like, oh, you know, one of the biggest problems of our of our current existence is the environment and the way you should deal with it is like your personal purchasing choices and, and what, oh you know, <laughs> and, and, and like if we want to actually sort of think seriously about all the things that we're doing to, to destroy the world around us and make ourselves sick in the process and then put people on the hook for the bills for that care and then yep. blame them for getting sick because this is what we do here in the U.S. And of course, it doesn't stay locked within our borders. Um, you know, then we actually have to sort of start 
really thinking about health much bigger than through the lens of what counts as billable uh, by an insurance company. Yeah, I. this just is another example in the U.S. and capitalism's just lack of capacity to be precautious or to have any kind of precautionary systems in place, right? It's it's all very reactionary to a major disaster happening, right? If we think about the Fern Hollow Bridge, Pittsburgh was just fine to let all the bridges crumble and be in in low repair until what till something terrible happens and then we fix them. What would have happened if if we had had put in some of these precautionary you know, updates or rebuilding the bridges that are are not quite at the lowest level of disrepair, but but could be soon. And and this is just another example in that. What if our chemical regulation regulated new and emerging chemicals as classes and put the burden of proof on the companies who want to put them into the environment mm-hmm. rather than only bringing it to attention when a community is is exposed or when people start to have health impacts, right? Mm -hmm. This could have been prevented Mm -hmm. in so many different ways. And it really gets back to just the chemical regulation and the way that environmental disasters are regulated, right? The burden of proof is all on the community. They're going to have to prove their own health impacts. The company is not going to go around and say, oh, you have you have this rash? Well, that might be, that's probably our fault. Here, here's the money, right? No, it's going to be a bunch of people coming together, having a class action lawsuit after having this terrible experience. Yeah. I mean, and and this is down to really, I think, ultimately, why this is most broadly a problem of political economy, because the only, you know, the, the sort of underlying thing that is really the, almost the egg, right? Like, and not the chicken, And I appreciated the way that you started by saying, well, there are four things we could have done. One would have been to listen to train workers in advance, (laughs) Um, you know, and and while that would not have definitively prevented this specific disaster, right, like that is part of the broader kernel of the problem is that our theory of governance and our ideology and our political economy says like that the priority is to sort of maintain the the sovereignty of these businesses and their capacities for profit and wealth generation. And that, you know, an acceptable means of fighting back for the average person is the court system and that that's going to be our framework of what justice is. And that leaves no room for for environmental justice. This, This is exactly like the ADA in so many ways in that it's a framework for appealing for justice, for appealing for access, for appealing for remediation, for appealing for the things that you need to live a life, you know, that you deserve. And it's also, of course, set up in a system that when it was designed, they said, okay, we have to make sure that this works for employers. This has to work for bosses. We have to make sure we're not forcing them to hire people they don't want who are going to ruin you know, ruin their business, including trans people, which is why I have to leave trans people out of the ADA explicitly. And so, you know, you have these these moments where, yeah, we can we could stand up, um, you know, use this ACA provision and get people in East Palestine Medicare for all. Right. Like there are provisions within the ACA that said, like, we can leverage certain, you know, populations need for care above and beyond like what the market will provide by giving them access to Medicare. Or we could say there are no more like high risk pools and we're not going to use the economic valuation of life to meet our access to care. Mm -hmm. Right. And so 
that would require a sort of fundamentally different approach. And as as it stands, one of the biggest hurdles that I think we all face is ultimately the the fundamental way that we approach thinking through both naming the problem and what the political horizon could even be for an intervention, for remediation, for even a response, right? Like we are self-limiting the possibilities and we're also guaranteeing some of the harm is going to be remained um, sort of baked in until we're willing to sort of address some of these fundamental dynamics that ultimately have a lot of power over who lives and who dies. Yeah, no, I've been trying to teach about um, power dynamics in an environmental health class that I'm teaching and, and trying to to pull in those like political factors and the systems that Im- impact how we interact with the environment, not only on a, a chemical and you know physical level, but also on a social level. And so a- everything that you said absolutely plays into that. Who has the power to decide what is thrown into a river or if they have to declare what those chemicals are? Confidential business information is is a big pet peeve of mine, mm-hmm. and and I like to use that as a big power dynamic example. Where, um, yeah, we don't in the case of- we don't know what's in. I'm sorry to cut you off, but we don't know what's in fracking fluid. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. I was going to talk about PFAS, but there's lots of evidence that there's PFAS in fracking fluid, right? Or they use it in fracking, and and they don't have to disclose that information. The companies don't have to disclose that information. So scientists are going around collecting all these samples from a place they think there might be contamination. And they could easily have these reference standards provided by the company, mm-hmm. but they they don't. And so the because the companies say, no, we don't have to give you that information and, and the law upholds that. But then they have to go and do non-targeted analysis where they just cast a wide net and see what might be there. And that sets back results and sets back our understanding of what people are being exposed to. And it has a lot of, of really um, inhibitory consequences on what we know about the environment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of even just understanding, like, you know, I I think it's really funny to consider like the Biden administration basically being like, no, he's not going to go make a stop. But like his number one thing is the moonshot cancer initiative and wanting to cure cancer. And, you know, it's like to think about like, oh, no, I'm not going to go like visit the the population of, you know, industrial um, scandal who were just given like very little money, offered very little money from the company. The company's representatives wouldn't go to the town hall, you know. But, you know, what really matters to him is is, is curing cancer. Well, like, what the f- Well, yeah, you- a, a moonshot on cancer yeah. might involve, I don't know, regulating the chemical industry even a fucking yeah. little bit. Couldn't like, be. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's- yeah. And also recognizing that, like, cancer is absolutely a very terrible and traumatic outcome and impacts lots of lots of people. There are additional health outcomes too. And those are things that that we might, you know, want to pay attention to. Also, there's a, there's a very yes and component here. Uh, Yes, yes, absolutely. And perhaps, you know, chronic liver disease after Mm -hmm. chemical contamination Mm -hmm. along with autoimmune diseases. Oh yeah. 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 We can name any disease. Environmental there's probably an environmental component somewhere, but you know, it'd be great if we had a lot of funding to research that. 
and figure out what's going on so we could prevent them. I mean, we'd much rather throw that money into proving that there's a genetic predisposition or something, you know, because that's like we'd much rather blame individuals. It's it it, it is one of those things, though, where it's like this is why um, the idea of cure is so critiqued within like a, a critical disability framework, because cancer is a very good example of this, right, where we say, okay, we want to cure cancer. Um, we want to eliminate cancer as a problem. What it does is like forecloses on those other chronic conditions that cure is never on the table for or not even um, like close to something that we're technologically at the level of. Right. And we think of like all of the people who, you know, just for decades are exposed to things maybe through work, uh, maybe just through the air that they're breathing in the windows that are coming in their house, and they're going to end up with chronic kidney disease, and then they're going to be like exploited by the company who's doing um, their like you know by UPMC monthly- <laughs> or or Davida yeah. even worse. I'm like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even get to like a medical center. Like I'm just thinking of like all of the the really extractive ways, of, like in particular also like Hep C populations are mm-hmm. managed and and we even have a cure for hep C which is like at such an exorbitant cost but all of these ideas of like the cure being the ultimate goal and, and that sort of returning to the healthy body they foreclose the the ongoing unhealthy quote-unquote unhealthy body that can't be cured that's never in that space is like this kind of condition of non-life and it deprioritizes people but it also gives people an idea of like what a kind of successful disease experience versus like a failed disease experience is. And and so to sort of say like, I want to cure cancer and I'm not going to go talk to a population of people who've just been potentially exposed to something that's most popularly known as being associated with like breast cancers in particular, you know, it's, it's just, it's like a kind of really interesting um, example of how we really focus on like, people only once they've uh, reached that diagnostic point, right, where they become uh, eligible for being enrolled in one of these trials that, that might save their life and might cause a cure. But we're, we're never going to throw that kind of resources or money into getting the chemicals out of the water that might have gotten them there in the first place. Right. And then but like we're going to like hem and haw about needing to reduce healthcare costs because of all the like and, and it's these things that really just make me want to scream, right? Because you can't actually like separate pharmaceuticals and healthcare and the environment out into discrete categories, and yet we pretend that we can, and it holds us back from being able to, you know, live lives that are a little less brutal, but also, I think, understand disease more fully. I think it really prevents people from understanding how someone could end up like me with an autoimmune disease. I mean, a lot of people talk about the fact that certain autoimmune diseases can be triggered post-viral, but it's not just like the the virus itself. It's the virus in the context of your body living in the context of the air you breathe and the water you're around. And, you know, when I got sick, I was living in an area where the the ground was, you know, pretty well known for being contaminated after large-scale uh, IBM production in the 60s and 70s in South Florida. I mean, South Florida is known for having a lot of problems with <laughs> chemical exposures. And so, you know, could you say it was Epstein-Barr virus? Is it my genetics? Is it South Florida? Is it growing up in Los Angeles? Who the fuck cares at the end of the day? Like, here I am living in the condition that I'm living in um, for the rest of my life. And it's never going to be a priority because no one's going to cure me, right? Like, you're never going to be able to sell a cure for an autoimmune disease. So it's it's one of these, I think, moments where we start to think about health more 
holistically and, and sort of more interconnectedly, but I think the discourse around this accident has taken it back out of that framework and really forced it into a kind of American understanding of individuated health. And I think that's where a lot of these, the way that it's been kind of like leveraged and in second and third course discourse, every time it's being reproduced and sort of pulled further away from the folks who are actually affected, it's also being sort of defanged and removed from this actual sort of context of like what social and structural determinants of health actually are, right? You know, it, it removes the questioning of like, am I exposed to pollution in my area? And it's a really small thing, but it also isn't because these things work on this larger affective scale to sort of focus our imaginations away from the ongoing ways that capitalist priorities sort of result in these health outcomes <laughs> um, to, I think, try and belie the fact that this is a cost-benefit trade-off that has been made. Well, absolutely. I mean, I appreciate, Kim, that you kind of brought up like the the precautionary principle. Like, this is exactly why I'm such a precautionary principle head, but like, that's not how, <laughs> that's not how the chemical industry operates, right? Like the chemical industry operates according to cost-benefit analyses and things like the costs uh, imposed on the residents of East Palestine, for example, are not factored into those cost-benefit analyses. Those are externalities that these companies don't have to account for. And, um, you know, call me call me a, a left-wing extremist, but I think that's <laughs> fucked up. You know, like, I think that that's like not, that's not how it, that's not how it should be. But I think, you know, it's also like, again, you know, I, I appreciate sort of like the toxicological nuance findings mm -hmm. because I don't think... Watching the reaction to this has been very interesting because I'm like, I don't think that people really realize like how much pollution we are all exposed to all the time. Yeah. And like that gets to kind of the, the irreducible, I guess, uncertainty of this type of science. And that irreducible uncertainty is something that companies like Norfolk Southern, you know, like DuPont, whatever, can really turn to their advantage. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today to share some of your expertise and also help us talk through some of the bigger contextual questions um, around not just this derailment, but like when we start talking about environmental catastrophe in general and these immediate moments where we respond to things that are multi-layered. I'm not saying polycrisis, but this is a multi-layered sort of contingent phenomenon where we're talking about the intersection of health justice, environmental justice, and labor justice playing out in our political economy and it having real world effects in so many ways, whether that's like displacing people from their homes, you know, health effects down the line, um, changing the burden on healthcare. Like it, as, as this conversation I think is revealed, it's like all, uh, impossible to disentangle at the end of the day. So I really, really just appreciate you helping us try and lay some of this out and putting the nuance out for people to really be able to just take in for themselves. Oh, well, thanks. Well, it's been, been really nice to be on. I'm, I'm definitely supportive of podcasts and media that, that connect the social and political aspects to, some complicated science. And I think Death Panel does a really good job of that. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Couldn't do it without Abby's help, too, especially. <laughs> LOL. Um, <laughs> yeah, we love Abby. <laughs> we love Abby here. And if folks want to follow you on Twitter, um, Kim is at Kim K. Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T. -T. Kim, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Kim. Oh, yeah. And I think... Well, thank you. 
patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons will catch you Monday in the bonus feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Yeah.